The ability to go out and see the stars at night, that's the sort of thing that should be a human right. Hippie nonsense. Why is it so important? Because the world is haunted, and I think that you forget that when you're not encountering those ghosts regularly. All right, what's up, everybody? This is Other Life. I am Justin Murphy. I just wanted to let you know that I write a free newsletter to thousands of people every week. It's where I publish my best work, I share events that you can come to, and much more. We have an insane private community around the newsletter, and it's free. Go check it out. Just go to otherlife.co. That's otherlife.co. When you subscribe, I'm going to send you a folder of PDFs that contain all of my personal highlights from a bunch of my favorite books that I've read over the years. So you'll get a million insights after just a few minutes of browsing these PDFs, really. They're really special to me, and I just figured I'd share them with you all. So that's otherlife.co, otherlife.co. All right, Neil, we are here for the launch of the Mars Review of Books, where you have an essay in the inaugural issue. So I think that's the most sensible place to start. My first question for you, it's an easy one. Can we build stars from scratch? For certain values of scratch and certain values of star, that's, that's <laughs> uh, probably correct. I think that the, the bigger question is, I mean, you know, there's kind of the, the trope of not can we, should we? Um, it's not that. It's, it's whether or not we're liable to get ourselves into a situation in which it actually solves the problems that we think we're trying to solve okay. by building stars. Say more. So we have been driven towards nuclear fusion as a fuel supply because it has this promise of immense unlimited power for us, right? That, we, that we're actually going to get uh, net energy gain out of this process. There's really two fundamental problems with, with this kind of approach to technologism. Uh, the first being that it's, it's one of these processes that is incredibly capital intensive and institution intensive. And so we have to ask hard questions about, is it, is it building the kind of world that we want to build? Uh, yeah, I mean, people, you know, they think about like the, the kind of the solar punk ideal of, you know, we'll have some little solar panels in various places, or we'll have a, a nuclear fusion supply. We'll get our, we'll get our Star Trek style future. And what these visions always elide is that the actual processes of manufacture and disposal entail all sorts of nasty processes and nasty chemicals, and we can't get rid of those. They are externalities that inhere in the technology, and is it something that we actually want to keep? All right, so that's the first problem. The, the second problem is kind of the, the technological pessimist view of whether or not giving humans unlimited energy in for some value of that phrase is actually remotely a good idea mm. right like like are we grown up enough to handle what would be possible if we actually had unlimited energy okay say more i think a lot of people think it's obvious it's uh sounds great you know so tell us what you know what's the uh What's the bear case for free energy? Right. Well, look at what happened with, with the widespread um, introduction of electricity, for instance, like rural electrification and so forth. It introduced new patterns of, of existence and daily life cycle that I think many recognize are, are deleterious to human health and well-being and, and human flourishing. Uh, you know, there, there was 
definitely a strong case made for, you know, every every person in the United States needs electricity. And we didn't really complete the process of rural electrification until the 1970s, I think. Um, there, there's a, a friend of my, my mother's who grew up in Arkansas in the 1960s and did not have power, for instance. So this, this goes quite later. This goes much later than people tend to think of this, of this being a concern. And we like not being a third world country in that sense, right? Like, like it, it, it's, it's good for us in many ways. But there's an inherent trade-off uh, in, in which what we get when we have this available is a, it's like the moth drawn to the flame, right? Like we've introduced this unnatural way of being and coexisting with ourselves and with each other and, and with, uh, with the world itself that's enabled by things like artificial light. Is this good? Right. I think that most of the things that we're getting from artificial light are are probably a slight net good, but there's a lot of hugely negative effects we're getting from artificial light. Mm. You know, like it's messing with our circadian rhythm. Um, it's polluting our night sky. I think that that the ability to go out and see the stars at night, honestly, it should be like if we're going to apply the term human right to anything, that's the sort of thing that should be a human right. Like people want to gripe about clean air, like humans get to breathe clean air. Humans should get to see clean stars. Now, why is that so important, though? Some people listening to this will say, oh, that's just hippie nonsense. That's not that important. Why is it so important? Because the world is haunted. And I think that you forget that when you're not encountering those ghosts mm. regularly. So we've, we've been robbed of our access to those ghosts in a in way. In a sense, right? Like, like you've, you've, just as we don't live outdoors anymore, you know, even, even uh, uh, living in a castle or a palace 500 years ago would have been essentially living outdoors. You would not have had climate controlled air. You would not have had glass in most of your windows. Uh, you wouldn't, you know, the doors probably would have been sheets of linen or something that you, you would pass through. You were connected to the broader environment in a way that made you aware of natural processes. And I think that, you know, if you go back to early forms of language talking about things like spirit, they essentially all share in common the root idea of breath, right? Like, like Hebrew Ruach, um, Egyptian notions about the, the fivefold nature of the soul. And so not feeling gusts of wind, not observing eddies and dust devils and things like that. Like this is another way in which we've kind of been shorn from the, the fundamental hauntedness of the world. Wow. Okay. And, and so we're, we're losing touch with that animism. Right, sure. And so free, unlimited energy would just be that problem times a million or times infinity, really. <laughs> that's, that's one angle. I think there, there's a number of critiques I could make of free and limited energy. But yeah. it's, like, it's like letting the kid go in the candy shop and telling them that there is literally no limit and you will live here forever. Fascinating take. Because so, I've only ever heard people talk about that in, in, in the positive. So, um, okay. So that's a great way to start the conversation. Neil, you are a... Uh, computer scientist. You have a background in uh, nuclear engineering. Uh, you teach computer science at universities, but you're also deep into Urbit. You you probably know as much or more about Hoon and programming on Urbit than anyone else in the world. Uh, you teach it actively. You run Hoon School. So you're also a, a 
a man of the faith and you're a very philosophical man having got to talk with you about various things you know over many months now um you have a fascinating perspective that ranges across technology and philosophy and religion and ethics and aesthetics so i want to talk about all these things in turn i think the best place to start is i want to ask you about the relationship between computing and the soul i want to talk about this idea of insolment i want to ask you about what it means to build technical structures correctly and why that's so important, what that has to do with our relationship to, to higher values, perhaps let's say higher powers. You have very interesting perspective on this. So I want to just give you an open prompt to tell me about the soul, tell me about the gods and building things correctly. <laughs> so I think the, the root of this conversation, uh, what probably clued you into my thinking about this in, in the beginning was uh, a comment I made about when you boot an Urbit ship, you can, you can watch the soul going into this ship, right? So when, so when an Urbit ship boots, there's a, there's a set of commands that are run at the beginning, but one of, the, one of the things that these commands do is they give the ship identity. This is one of the first things that happens in the process of booting the orbit ship is it gains this cryptographic identity. And I, I refer to this as, as insolment, right? That we're actually watching the, the birth of a new entity that will be persistent and we will have some kind of relationship with this thing that exists in the real world. Now, I, I think that there are things like souls. There are souls and there are things like souls. And there are things that it is at least heuristically useful for us to refer to as, as if they were souls, whether or not we're assigning a theological meaning to that. Uh, you know, humans forever have been animistic. And we are still deeply animistic, even as modern materialists. I mean, a moment ago, I made an argument that we're, we're cut off from that a little bit, but not completely, right? Like, we assign personality, right? We anthropomorphize the things around us all the time. And I don't think that's a mistake and I don't think it's an affectation, right? And, 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 it's, and it's not purely aesthetic either, right? Like it is possible for a cliff face to be sinister and for that to actually seem to bear some kind of, of warning that, you know, maybe it's, it's echoing with our, our Jungian racial unconsciousness or something, right? Like deep inside of us, but, but we are assigning meaning to the, to these events and these processes and these things that are ongoing. So when we think about what constitutes, um, what constitutes spirits or souls or is creating, uh, creating value, creating meaning in the things around us, we should be concerned with making things that are worthy of being insult, right? Like whether or not the thing actually has a soul, it's, we, can, we can bracket that, we can set it aside. We should make things that are worthy of being insult, right? Things that are, that are worthy of receiving some, some spark of, of divine fire, however, however you want to think about that. Whether or not the thing actually has it, we can think of it that way. So, so I love the, the Shinto... Uh, idea that when you have essentially the, the Shinto believe that you are undertaking ritual actions to appease the kami, which gets translated as gods mostly, but uh, means spirits and, and demigods and, and kind of this whole entire category of supernatural beings ranging from extremely powerful to, uh, you know, human levels of, of power. 
and agency. And what happens is there's this idea in Shinto that when you make certain kinds of objects, like a sword or a shrine or a tori gate, that if you make it properly, a kami will come to dwell in that object. That because you have made it in a way that is pleasing unto the god, the god will come inhabit it and it will make it its home. And it's not that the thing has its own spirit, its own voice. It has a spirit that has come to dwell in it because it was made in the proper way. So I think that this does deeply connect to the way that we make software, the way that we build software, because we can, we can always turn the question around and we can say, what kind of spirit or demon would live in Microsoft Word? <laughs> Right. Like this, this is a valid question, right? Like, (laughs) like what, what is being evoked by the ribbon when it was introduced to the top of, of word 2007, right? Hmm. What did, what did it do? What did it bring into being in the world? Uh, You know, we, we don't have to assign this full on theological meaning. Like there is, there is literally a, a, an imp with a cloven hoof somewhere dancing in glee every time someone gets lost in a particularly arcane user interface. But we can recognize that it is leading us into patterns that are either better than the nature that we are currently experiencing or patterns that are worse. Right? There, there, there's this rule, uh, you know, I, I, when I was reading a lot of philosophy in my 20s, I tried to boil it down to, okay, like, what's, what's the rule I live by? What's the thing I understand that, that should be the, the law that governs everything I do? And I ended up settling on elevate sentience as the way of expressing that, right? Like, whatever I do, it should increase light and intelligence, right? Mine, others, whatever it is, right? If, if, I, if I'm right, let that light shine through so other people see it. If I am wrong let them see my obstruction as a shadow that points them in the direction of the correct light. Right. I mean, I I would much rather be right than wrong, but I recognize that I'm often not. And so, so for me, if you can find a way to build things that enshrine or in soul, then you've done something that's created value in the world, right? That, that is in and of itself an inherently beautiful, valuable act of worship. Okay. And so what is a feature or some features of, Urbit's architecture that resonates with you in this way? What is it about Urbit that made you look at it and think, Eureka, this is correctly designed such that it is ready for the gods to it, to inhabit? Okay. So I think there, there are kind of three categories of things you get when you, when you pick up an Urbit, right? So if we think of Urbit as the, the whole system and we're, we're talking about the identity layer and we're talking about the knock virtual machine and we're talking about like whatever the software that is built on it and that we're interacting with it. Uh, So kind of this whole tangle. It's like a puzzle box or a treasure box. And as you, as you turn it and you examine it from different angles, different aspects of the thing jump out to you. And there's three fundamental kinds of things in this system. One of them is the, what I'll call the eternal verities, right? So the, if you're thinking about a stone sculptor, right? Stone sculpting is, is inherently subtractive, right? That it's like Michelangelo talking about the, the sculpture, you know, the, the thing is already inside of the rock. He's, he's letting it go, right? It's in the marble. He's freeing it from the marble. And this is an extremely complex process 
And this is the parts of the system like NOC that are cooling towards permanence, right? The idea being that uh, you are reaching some sort of predefined state. And when you reach that state, you're done. You can't change anymore, right? Like there's not a notion of negative absolute temperature. That's the Kelvin versioning, right? Actually, there is a notion of negative absolute temperature, but that's a weird thermodynamics stuff. Um, and it's actually hotter. Anyway, <laughs> um, but we're, we're treating it as if, you know, when we get to zero Kelvin, the system is then defined as the eternal specification, right? Like there's almost kind of a Taoist, right? The, the knock that can be knocked is not yet the true knock. So there, there are these, there's the, the eternal verities in the system. There are the very good attempts to take the logical ramifications of those and turn them into high-quality working software, right? There, there are human practicalities, things that people need to do. There's not one correct way to do them. There are more and less correct ways to do them. And we're trying to find a way of building the right data structures and representations and algorithms that capture the correct way of thinking, right? Like when you, when you take a tool in your hand, that tool represents a cached set of wisdom about the way that the world works. And it implies a certain ethic or, or morality about what you think the future of the world should look like. It's why you chose to use that tool. And so there's a lot of contingency in tools, but there's a lot that, that is inherent to, like there is a correct way to use a hammer. But there are correct ways of using different hammers. But there are still, there, there's a thing that is hammer nature and a thing that is not hammer nature. And so we have to, we have to, to navigate everything that's in between this when we're using the tool. So there's a lot in this middle ground in Urbit. And then there are the parts of Urbit where someone in 2017 needed a quick and dirty solution to solve this problem because they had a deadline to hit and they stuck it together and they pushed it and it's kind of lived on in some weird liminal existence ever since. And sometimes you run into these things. And if we believe that looking at a system like Urbit, if we believe that one can by way of the well-built human contingencies arrive at the eternal verities in that sense, then the errors are worthy of correction, right? Like it is worth our time and effort to figure out which are the errors and to expend human wisdom and insight and value and agency to correct those errors and make something new. Okay, so if you compare, let's say, Urbit to like Mac OS or something like that, the difference is that you feel are most important that distinguish Urbit, that drew you to Urbit and have led you to invest your life into Urbit. It, it is, is the first and most important one, this idea of Kelvin versioning, this idea of, of uh, eternal verities that are locked in rather than arbitrary. Um, or, or is there something else? Is there another one? Or um, how, would you, how would you put that? Well, macOS is an interesting test case because if you go back to the next step operating system, I think that in some sense they thought they were trying to find, I don't know if they, any, any of them involved that would have referred to as like an internal verity kind of idea, but they thought there was a better way to build software than what was being done. And they decided ultimately to build it on top of BSD Unix and, and, and elaborate from that point forward because there's not really another option. They simply had to 
work with what was available as an operating system kernel at the time. If they weren't going to go back to, to brass tacks and build this thing from scratch and they decided they didn't want to do that, they didn't really have any options, right? So, so you, can, you could do like the, the DOS Windows track of things. There was classic Mac OS, uh, which was turning into its own tangle, right? Like these are, these are all Gordian knots, right? Like this seems to be like what one kind of human activity does is tie Gordian knots mm. because we keep needing a new bit of functionality. And so one very Lindy approach to this problem is to just add another knot on the outside of, of the whole tangle. Mm-hmm. And so I think they, they were in the beginning, they were, they were trying to do this, but ultimately the, the Gordian knotness of the problem caught up with them. And, we ended up with the various versions of, of Mac OS X, which have been reasonably good user experience operating systems. I mean, we, we can't discount what happened in the late 90s with the, the Macintosh computing, but we can point to it and say that it looks like something about business enterprise turns everything it touches to crap, right? It's the opposite of the Midas touch. This might have to do with the the processes, the quarterly incentives, the way that we think about enshrining and creating uh, shareholder value. Uh, there, there could be a lot of organizational reasons for this, but it's one that we are we are continually falling back into this trap. Like this is this is a powerful demon mm. in the sense I was talking about a moment ago, right? Like right. like the demon of Byzantine user interfaces that only grow more complex with time is, is a strong demon. He is a prince in hell. Okay. Fascinating. Fascinating. And so you must be bullish enough on Urbit. You must believe in Urbit's prospects enough to, you know, spend so much time on it. You've, you've now dedicated, you know, more and more of your life to building out Urbit. Um, tell us a little bit more about how you see Urbit's prospects. Um, surely you must think it, it, it can win, uh, or will win under some conditions. How do you think about just the practical prospects of, of making Urbit win? So there's a whole spectrum of what we, what we could mean when we say Urbit wins, right? There's, there's one sense in which in 10 years, if we say the internet, we just mean Urbit. And we've, we've won, right? Like, like we, we completely swept the entire space of internet applications, internet identity, um, you know, anyone who's doing anything on a blockchain has an Urbit wallet, uh, uses Urbit for all their off-chain state and computations, right? That's, that's, the, that's the extreme bull case. There are a variety of other cases where Urbit persists. It carries value for some particular group of people acting and building things on the internet, but it doesn't ever get huge. And then there, there is a, a case where Urbit fails, Manifestly, right? Like something goes wrong. The bus factor is too small. Uh, we end up backed into some sort of technological corner that it seems to be literally unforeseeable based on what we're doing right now. Um, you know, Twitter, Twitter sacks everything that it's doing right now and decides to rebuild itself as its own clean slate implementation of the knock idea, right? Like there, there, there's a lot of potential things that could happen. I, one of the big reasons that I am getting involved with Urbit more and more is that I am a little bit bearish, which, which in this case means that I think that Urbit is at this very special window in the history of the project at which one person in the right place 
can make the difference between the project succeeding or failing in certain ways. You talk to a lot of people who are deep into Urbit. Um, you know, there, there's probably only a few dozen people who are as deep into Urbit as you are, who are as invested in building Urbit as you are. And you talk to most of them and, and a lot of them, I'd say a majority of them just feel like Urbit is, is inevitable. Like it's, um, it's destined and it has the mandate of heaven. And, uh, they're just kind of this deep, there's a lot of deep inner confidence that, that Urbit will win, um, sooner or later. And so your perspective is, is interesting and kind of refreshing in a way, because you, it sounds like you're working so hard on Urbit because you actually really think now is a crucial time. And if the right people do the right things, Urbit could win. But if the if people don't do the right things right now, then it very well could lose. So I just want to hear more about that and why you think that and, and how that looks specifically, maybe with some reference to like, what are the most crucial things that have to happen right now for Urbit to win? Absolutely. Good summary of, of my, my attitude there. Essentially, Urbit is a is an extremely fortuitous happy accident and honestly I don't know how on earth it got to the point that it's at. I don't think there's anything inevitable about this. Okay? I think it's a fantastically good idea. I think there's this this cosmic karmic sense in which it is a good and it is a thing we should be working towards. But if I look at the actual path dependence that got us to this point, like we've been we've been teetering on a tightrope to get us here, right? You know, when you when you get out of the labyrinth by following the thread, it's easy for you to look back and apply a narrative to it, which made it feel like it was inevitable for you to get out of the labyrinth and escape the Minotaur. But when you're inside the labyrinth with the Minotaur and you haven't found the thread yet, good luck, right? Like like I I feel like we are we are imputing too much, um, how do I want to say this? I think we are giving, lending too much credence to our own lack of agency in some ways or our own perceived lack of agency, which is not to say that anyone involved the project isn't demonstrating agency. It's that if you feel like the project will succeed, whether or not you do something, you are going to act in a categorically different way Mm. than if you feel like the project will succeed or fail based on whether or not you can apply the right pressure at the right moment in time. Right. Right. Like, like this is a battle and a battle is made or lost based on someone raising the standard on the right hill at the right time and on all sorts of accidents like that. Fascinating. And so I want people to engage at that level, right? Like I want people to, to believe that not only that, that the project isn't inevitable, but that it needs them, right? Like if you're thinking about working on a project like this, what, it doesn't mean go work for Talon or Urbit Foundation. It doesn't even mean go work for, for one of the other, you know, Ukbar, Holy and the other groups. I mean, these, these are fantastic, but it means that your engagement in this project in the end will make the difference to whether or not one branch of possibility comes into being or not. Right. And you, you said something to me at some point about how one of the things that's interesting about Hoon, the, the programming language native to Urbit, is that it requires a certain amount of courage, that the, the psychological step of, of deciding to start programming Urbit is a different kind of decision than the psychological decision to, let's say, start learning Python. And I thought that was very interesting because it seems like you believe there is um, a, a, a bit of strategic advantage in that, in that fact. Um, maybe you could speak to that a little bit, you know, especially for people out there. There's a lot of engineers in my audience. Uh, I've been trying to urbit pill them, you know, 
what can you say to engineers out there who maybe are interested in Urbit, sympathetic to it, but the, the, what everyone always says is they look at it, they're like, this is too weird. Uh, the, uh, they're almost offended that it's so weird. They're like, I'm not learning this. Um, you, but you think about it in, in a very different light. So I would love to just hear you, you talk about that. So for most of history, we can separate computing, the idea of computing into a, kind of a mystical strand and a practical, very pragmatic strand. And so if you go back to, uh, you know, uh, Ramon Lull, uh, Leibniz, John Wilkins, uh, and, and the idea of creating some sort of universal computing process, the calculus ratio senator, these kinds of ideas. They were interested in this idea of, can you write down a question in such a way that you can use some sort of formal process to realize the answer to this question? And so, so they publish books and they try and figure out can you do this thing? And it's like this really pie-in-the-sky philosophical, uh, philosophical uh, affectation that this, that this can be done. And it was never terribly mainstream. But one of the things that happened is in the early 20th century, David Hilbert put out his list of whatever the hundred, or has however many problems, no, the, the, I think it's the... Someone had 100 problems. He, maybe, maybe it was him that had the 100 problems. A bunch of questions for mathematicians to go solve these questions. And, and one of them was essentially like, how do you know when a process has completed, right? Like if you have an iterative process, how do you know when it's completed? And it turned out that this was an incredibly fruitful question. And Alonzo Church, Alan Turing, Kurt Gödel, and others got involved in this question. And they were exploring this idea of what does it mean to compute something and what does it mean to represent it mathematically? And at the same time, some of them, like Turing and, and others, were involved with the, the building of computational machines, you know, starting, starting with uh, uh, Blaise Pascal and, and um, Charles Babbage and others. They start to build practical mechanical machines that are realizing in physical gears representations of equations. And, you know, what, what happened around the 1930s, 1940s, is that these two traditions finally married and gave birth to modern computing, where you have both of these ideas. But this survived a little bit in the languages. And so the computing languages, there, there's kind of the, the Fortran tradition, right? Fortran's originally formula transcription or formula translation. And it's a very hardcore, we are moving bits around on the metal, and we are specifying how we're moving bits around on the, on the metal, and BCPL and C and C++ and others came out of this, this tradition. And on the other hand, you have the Lisp-like languages that are far more mathematical, and they're not as concerned with things like computational efficiency, they're, con they're concerned with correctness of expression. Right. So, you know, as, as anyone who's programmed C and C like languages can attest to, it's very easy to give yourself enough rope to hang yourself with. Right. It's very easy to get into all sorts of weird memory states and everything. And languages like Lisp, which are inviting you to have a different kind of relationship with what's going on, you're not able to do things nearly as efficiently as you can do in a language like C. But you can express it in a very clean mathematical way. The, the arch exemplar in this category is APL, 
which is a language that's actually written symbolically. When Iverson invented it, he had just invented a new, a new semi-mathematical notation that you have to have the proper keyboard or, or keyboard mapping to, to even write this language down. And it's a good, strong signal to people when they see APL for the first time that they're dealing with something that's fundamentally different from other programming languages that they may have dealt with before. Most of the time, most people are most comfortable doing things that are familiar to them. Nothing contentious about this, which means leaning more on languages that are word-like and mathematical expression-like. If you would like to do a mathematical operation, it is more comfortable for you to type 5 plus 4 than it is for you to type um, something like 5, 4 plus, right? Like a Polish notation like you'd run into in a stack-based language like fourth. Or paren, add, 4, 5, close paren in Lisp, right? It's just, it's just not sort of the way that we narratively think about, grammatically think about <clears throat> the syntax of the operations that we're doing. Most of the keyword-based languages, which means most languages, are heavily based on English language grammar and the grammar that human languages tend to use more broadly. And so that we have a strong bias towards just using a language that feels like it's kind of like a human language. There's a self-deception in this, of course, which is that when Python or R or Ruby say something using a human word, they don't necessarily mean something that's even close to what a human means by that word. I think for loop is a good example of this. I think that for is one of the worst possible words they could have chosen to describe the concept of a for loop. So you go back to Fortran, it's a do loop, right? And so, so there, there've been other ways of instantiating this idea, but I think that the, the, the common terminology in that case, and you know, maybe it's water under the bridge and it's just what we're stuck with in those languages. Back to Hoon. Hoon as a, as a structural language it's more like carefully crafting a mathematical expression or a molecule or a protein than it is like writing down a recipe, right? Like, like the, the wordier languages, the more verbose languages tend to invite you to think of writing a program as writing down a set of steps and then elaborating each of those steps in turn and thinking of it in this, in this very recipe-like format. Hoon forces you to think about, you know, back to my, my molecular analogy, it forces you to think about, you know, what's the backbone of my molecule? Where are the active sites on it? What sorts of transformations do they make? What relationship do they have to each other? And I would argue that it turns out that, you know, having paid the admittedly steep upfront cost of learning how Hoon works that the discipline that you will be forced to exercise in thinking about how to properly structure a Hoon expression or a Hoon program will lead you to avoid many categories of error that you are used to from other languages. You will simply sidestep them entirely. Between the static type checking and the way that uh, Hoon runes, which act as keywords, function in the language, you will simply omit entire categories of, of bugs that you are used to from other languages. And there's a lot of power in that. Interesting. And it also has an interesting selection effect, doesn't it? Because, you know, if anyone who hangs around Urbit groups enough, you really start to realize pretty quickly that Hoon developers, Hoon programmers are very different than your average programmer. It's like, 
you if you meet someone who is like working on an urban app and they're they're programming in hoon the probability that they also have some incredibly well-developed idiosyncratic philosophical belief on some on something <laughs> that's like a truly fascinating and impressive and uh, a joy to listen to is ridiculously high like the, that probability is way higher than um just meeting you know a programmer in any other language so i think there's i think that basically this is kind of one of urbit's secret weapons actually is the, is the the selection effect that the weirdness of the programming language has seems to select for um, people, I don't, I don't know what you'd call it. Maybe you have a theory. Is it high agency? Is it courage? Is it um, weirdness? I don't know what it is. But in a way, is this a secret weapon of Urbits? That's actually a really good thing that is um, make increasing the probability that the people who build this stuff um, at this crucial time, when things could become path dependent later on. At this crucial time, the people that are building it are disproportionately badass and interesting, and uh, you know, real independent thinkers trying to do badass, interesting, weird things. Am I onto something? Is that how you think about it? Or because uh, to me, I feel like this is actually a, a real advantage and a secret weapon for Urbit. So I think there's there's at least two ways we can tell this story. One of them one of them is more self flattering than the other. Sure. <laughs> I'm not going to say that that one of them is more that it, that it's not correct for being for being that. But we have a world in which Hoon is perceived as an intimidating language. It's very ASCII character heavy. It is structurally definite in a way that people are not used to programs being structurally definite for the most part. I mean, it's not completely true, but the structure manifests itself in a different way than it does in, say, C++ or Java. And so there's... If you, if you go back to, to Phil wrote the Urbic precepts, he has a place where he talks, uh, he, he enjoins you to code courageously and like code without fear, right? Like walk into any piece of code and don't be afraid of the code, right? You have to be the master of the code or the code will master you. And there's something to that because if you are willing to put in the time and effort to master Hoon, it's like breaking a horse, and once you've done that, you get much more out of it than that initial effort that you put into breaking the horse. Now, the counter-argument, the other story I think you could tell, is that people who get into Urbit are just the true believer archetype, and that whatever they, they tend to take in hand, they're, they're going to do completely and utterly. Right. Um, but again, that's still not a bad thing. Right. That, that once again, maybe the difference between the project succeeding or not succeeding. You don't right. want a bunch of half-hearted people who are like, yeah, I learned, I learned Hoon, but I never use it, right? Like, like you want people who say, I learned Hoon, and it gave me yet another valuable way of seeing and interacting with the world. Right. Right. And, and you get this with some other languages. I think APL is one, Clojure is another one. Um, parts of the Haskell community behave this way. Um, Maybe the Ruby community in its best moments, I think, I think behaves this way. So it's not, it's not completely alien, but one of the differences is that for Hoon, to learn Hoon, you can't do anything else with it, right? <laughs> mm. Like, it's good for one thing, mm. and, in, and this, is, this is that thing. I mean, it's becoming less true. I mean, you, have to do, you do have to write on the Urbit platform, but you don't have to write Urbit itself, right? The Urbit OS, Arvo, anymore, Two years ago, that was true. That's no longer true, right? You can write an app, stand it up. Uh, we're also getting to the point where we can have front-end devs who are being productive in the urban ecosystem who don't know any Hoon at all and can talk to 
hoon agents and, and do useful and productive things. So uh, there's there's some value there. So yeah, I think we can tell the story in some in some different illuminating ways. But I agree that there's a strong selection effect on what's going into Urbit. And it's very interesting to see where, I, I could liken this to an immune system, right? There are certain places where if you mention Urbit, the antibodies kick in, mm-hmm. right? Like Hacker News tends to be one of these places where for whatever experience they had in 2017 with Urbit, they will never change their mind yeah. based on whatever they thought the the marketing around Urbit was and what their experience was in 2017. They will never update their assumptions about this. Yeah, it's hilarious. I posted, uh, I, r- I wrote an article about Urbit's network growth, which is like totally kicked off in the past few months. And I posted it to Hacker News. And I think it was on the front page shortly for one day, a couple weeks ago. And it's so true what you're saying. Every single objection, of which there were many, as there always are on Hacker News, the same exact objections as you can find on Hacker News posts five years ago. The same exact objections. Uh, and it, like no interest in things that have changed, no attention or discussion on uh, all that's happened and all that's been improved. Um, yeah, it's, it's this automatic immune response. So Urbit has a strong ethos of underhyping itself. And I think in some ways, so th- this has been a strong move for us because what it means is that when you discover Urbit, it's like discovering a secret door in the wall that you didn't know was there. And there's this garden on the other side of the door. And it's incredible because you really, you didn't, you didn't know it was there. You didn't, you, like, you didn't even realize there was a space behind this wall. And you open it up and not only is there something there and it's real, but there are other people there. But the problem is that once you get in the garden, you kind of don't want to go back out and tell people there's a garden here, right? Um, not only from, from an evangelical standpoint, but just from a... Like, if we internally feel like these concerns have been satisfactorily addressed, it almost feels like a waste of time to to relive them for a world that doesn't want to hear those concerns addressed. So I think we we should probably do a better job of writing up a really definitive, uh, eloquent, not exactly a refutation, but at least a document or an essay that encapsulates the the idos of the project and makes it clear to any reader why they should take the project seriously, even if there's a peanut gallery somewhere that does not. Sure, sure. And so tell me a little bit more about what you've learned from John Milbank around ethics and aesthetics. Okay. So John Milbank is a he's a high Anglican theologian, and he's he I think he probably made his big name in the '90s for a book called Radical Orthodoxy, uh, which was kind of a, an Anglo-Catholic slash Anglican um, book that was diving very deeply into like things like the nominalist voluntarist controversy and a lot of very obscure things that went on in you know, the 1300s uh, and trying to, to refoot modern theology on a new basis. And it had a big splash, but he's also been a poet on the side. And so one of his books called The Legend of Death has an extremely powerful prefatory essay in which he's trying to grasp what he calls the human diagonals, which are the relationship between the, the verticals that connect us to God and divine realities 
and the horizontals that connect us to each other. And so the diagonals are the things that, that lift us from the human plane and point us at the divine, but, but in a human way. And in this essay, uh, he makes a couple of points, uh, one of them being that the, the aesthetic sense of finding the proper placement precisely overlaps with the human ethical sense, as close to the quote as I can get it. And similarly, he argues that the task of man is the aesthetic consummation of nature. Which I think is probably stronger than I think a lot of, of theists would like to go in, the, in that particular direction, but we, we can set that aside. So we live in a world that is contingent and accidental. Many of the things that have happened around us have, have just happened. Their are patterns, um, physical, psychological, biological, material, mental, moral patterns, right? And many of these patterns are adaptive, right? So, so when, when circumstances change, it enables a new kind of exploration, a kind of a Cambrian explosion of forms anytime something changes. So for instance, Gutenberg invents movable type printing press. You get a hundred years of people publishing, all, they're all publishing codices and broadsheets and the like, but they're publishing them in very, different, in very different layouts and form factors, and there's a lot of exploration, and people are basically figuring out like, like what's actually possible with this medium. And there's a lot of illumination of, you know, you'll get a book and it's all printed, but they still go ahead and they illuminate the majuscules. Because why wouldn't you illuminate the majuscules of a book? So there's a retention of older forms that are carried over into the new form. There's an exploration of the possibilities of the new form. But by, say, 1600, maybe even earlier, it's all gone, right? There's like maybe like three ways we make books. And we don't really do anything else. And it turns out that these are probably, for most, for most purposes, they're the most adaptive way to make books. It wasn't clear in the beginning that that would be the case, but it turns out that that's the case. Uh, you know, once you've, once you've created a market for books, then this is also going to have a, a feedback loop on what's possible. So anytime you have the material circumstances change, it opens up a new window of, of possibility that humans are very, very good at exploring rapidly. Most of the time this is tied to capital in the Marxist and, and Deleuze and Landian sense, right? Where you, you can actually treat money as a nervous system that is allowing the entire system of capital to reason about what is going on in the world around it, right? Like it's, it's actually acting as kind of this splintered, fragmented, schizophrenic nervous system, but it is a nervous system that is written in dollars and, and wires, you can definitely capture parts of that nervous system in unproductive eddies, right? So you, you can have, you, you can A-B test your way into oblivion, essentially, right? Like, like we get better and better at making sugar. Well, it turns out people are getting better and better at getting fatter as a result of that, right? And that's like, also the business enterprise problem you talked about earlier when it comes to modern contemporary software for the most part. Yes, yeah. right, right. We, we fall into these co-optation traps. Um, they're... If you have a ferret, you can tell from the existence of the ferret, even if you knew nothing else, you would know that a rabbit existed, 
or you would know that something like a rabbit existed. If you know a sunflower exists, you know a sun exists. They're necessarily entailed. If you know that a moth exists, you don't know that a flame exists, right? The flame is an artificial co-optation of the natural process. It's the moth wireheading itself, right? Like, like the, the, the self-immolation in the flame is, or, is orgasmium for the moth, right? Like this is the, the end that it will get led to in the absence of other factors that prevent it from reaching that end. Right. We as humans have the advantage that possessing agency and intelligence, what we can mean by this is that there's a, there's a meta level, there's a metacognitive level that we are able to operate at which enables us to recognize and back out of these kinds of greedy local optima. And so when we look at the, the processes that are leading us into unproductive places, you know, the, the, this is the, the gom jabbar of our, of our humanity, right? Like, like are, we, are we human? Can we actually use our brain to override the processes that otherwise would trap us in a way that we can't escape. And if we're building things correctly, we should be hopefully making that either more apparent or easier to do. But it's something we have to be very, very careful with. That's, I've forgotten the question. That's great. No, that was an amazing riff. That was fascinating. Um, it's also the case, isn't it, that as we try to do that, as we try to navigate out of these local optima for uh greener pastures, we have certain heuristics, right? And there's a certain kind of convergence between that which is aesthetically beautiful and that which is ethically good. I think that was also something you were telling me about, which I find uh, intriguing and compelling as as a way of how we as humans actually choose to live. How how do we actually orient our, our lives um, in the direction that is most likely to escape local optima and and go towards that that global that global optima. Okay, I think there are probably at least two challenges that we have to overcome if we're going to establish uh, the idea that ethics and aesthetics can be collapsed along this axis. One of them is that we are steeped in a universe of authoritarian high modernism. Right, where we are used to a top-down approach to what constitutes good aesthetics. Partially, this derives from the existence of a, of a designer, excuse me, a designer canon. And in some ways, this is good because you could look at, for instance, what Bauhaus was doing, and you may react to it positively or negatively but it seems to entail its own morality, right? Like, like there, there's, there's kind of an ethic of living in a Bauhaus world that wouldn't make sense if you were trying to live in a very different kind of world. And I think people are trying to run this backwards with varying degrees of success. I think that steampunk was a reasonably good attempt to try to do this, where we're saying, okay, if we adopt the aesthetics, can we LARP our way back into a functional Victorian society in some sense while retaining our, our modern social mores? That is a widespread idea yeah. that a lot of people think. Right. Yeah. Like that we, we can flip this on its head and we can get there. Right. I, I don't think we can because most of these are internally hollow in a way that they, 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 there's not enough of a kernel there 
to actually start the thing. Right. Right. Like you've got the grain of sand, but that doesn't mean you're going to get a pearl. Yeah. Ultimately. The, the other thing that I think we have to deal with is what I would consider to be the first world rejoinder that uh, maybe taking kind of a, a primitivist view that authentic humans in the state of nature don't care about aesthetics, right? This is a privilege that we have because we're living in an over-socialized world. But I think that's manifestly untrue. Um, it, it, does, it does tap into a certain kind of Rousseauian idea around the noble savage who's untainted by, you know, what 18th century Frenchmen think is, is good or bad. But it, it's just not true, right? Like, there, there may not be as much conscious design, right? There's an astonishing persistence of forms. Once someone figures out how to do something in a certain way, it turns out that 99% of humans are fairly incurious and having been given a form of things to do and no myth of progress to structure the way that they interact with the world, they will not innovate the thing that they're doing. They will carve a spoon the same way their father and their grandfather carved a spoon. They will, um, you know, bow and arrow gets introduced. I think there's, there's probably a number of things that were introduced once and spread to the rest of the world and some things were polygenetic, but some things were, were monogenetic. They were, they were innovated one time. Someone had that insight, and everyone just copied it because it was a good idea. Right. But they never changed it again. Right. In most which is cases, also hard for us to see today. Right. And in most cases, it's rational to do that, right? It makes a lot of sense. If something works, just keep doing it. But yeah, within, within, uh, within limits. I think another thing that's changed that militates against the truth of that statement today is that the length of our feedback loop is much shorter than it used to be. Right. So it's increasingly possible to iterate and innovate all the time, really, and just right. see what works and constantly switch into the thing that is more promising. Right, right. There, there's, there's always a there's, a, there's a, there's an evolution of forms over time. And the, yeah, the, the having time is drawing ever shorter. Right. So to bring this full circle to to engineering and how we make software as a society and how we network as a society, it's like everyone on some level sees that the current system of social software and computing in general is uh, going in a certain dystopian directions. And in you know the mainstream consciousness, there are a few memes that 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 bear most of the load in, in this shared sense. Right. Whether it's uh, the meme of privacy or it's the meme of, you know, um, capitalist exploitation or it's the meme of uh, what have you or the meme of, you know, misinformation, disinformation is the hot one right now. Um, there, are, there are all these popular memes where on some level, to me, I think it's all pointing back to certain certain core problems uh, in the nature of, of how we do computing as a society. So I think it's it's kind of the one of the biggest examples of of the stakes of what we're talking about. There's a shared sense that we are stuck in a local optima of some kind when it comes to computing. Um, and so uh, people who are into Urbit, people who are into these kind of more weird, um, uh, ambitious attempts to rewrite things from fundamentals. Um, I guess the idea is that we, we on some level we do, uh, we are using these heuristics that you're talking about, right? It's, it's a sense that when I log onto my Apple computer, 
there are just many things that don't feel right about it, right? There, there are many things, uh, I, there, there are many ways in which we don't like ourselves um, in our everyday computing habits. And we take a step back and we're like, you know, this just doesn't feel good. This doesn't, I, I don't feel like I am flourishing um, when I use my computer. Um, and so, yeah, I'm just basically trying to bring the, compu- the, the conversation here on ethics and, and aesthetics back to um, this question of engineering and, and software and, and computing. Um, am I am I barking up the right tree or what? So when yeah when uh, so Matthew Crawford, who wrote Shop Classes Soulcraft and then um, the World Beyond Your Head, I think he's got another book out now. He's a he was a philosopher think tank guy who like quit to run a motorcycle shop. So you know very very Robert Persig Zen and the art art of motorcycle maintenance kind of kind of guy. He deals extensively in one of his books with the idea that when you use a tool your brain no longer manipulates the, t- the hand, it manipulates the tool, right? That, that there's, there's a sense in which if you look at the way that the mirror neurons and everything are behaving when you work with it, you really perceive the tool as an extension of yourself. So I will argue that this is, this is what proper attention is, okay? So, so attention is to attend to, right? It's, it's to become aware of something. It's to hold it in your consciousness in a certain form and structure. And there've been a lot of complaints made over, over the years. Um, and they, they go in and out of vogue about our declining capacity for attention. Partially, this is going to be the natural consequence of having tighter feedback loops, right? If I don't need to write a 10 page missive to get my point across to someone, I'm not going to expend the energy to do that. It doesn't even make sense to Peacock to do that because the other person's not going to read it, right? Like we just, we've moved to a, to a, a world that in general expects shorter forms of, of uh, communication. But we also know that people are not reading long articles. They are not reading books, right? They, all of these things have gone down. And, you know, part of it is definitely the, the, fact that we're all walking around with a bowl of M&Ms in our pocket all the time. And of course, we're going to be popping M&Ms into our mouth. Like, like this, is, this is human nature. But when we think about the tools that we're using, if, if the proper role of a tool is to give conceptual shape to our attention, then that means that when we use a tool, we are making a decision about the moral landscape that is in our future right? That there, there's a thing that is entailed by the tool that we use and the way we use that tool. And it means that we are legating to our heirs a certain shape of the universe and their civilization based on the tools we decide to build and hand to them, right? There's, there's a heritage of tools. Um, I think about this very concretely because th- this, came, this came home to me when I was building a workbench in my garage using my great-grandfather's bench plane while my children were playing outside. And I had this moment of like, there are five generations here, right? Like it was, it was really powerful to sort of have this like, I'm actually using this tool that's like 80 years old and it means something. Urbit, I think, can tie back into this. If we, if we pull it off correctly, it will. Because the Urbit will be a thing that if it's a hundred year computer, that's not a human lifetime, right? We are talking about things that are now generational. We are starting to talk about building things that will not last through the next quarter or even the next decade. We're talking about building things that your grandchildren's grandchildren 
have a macroscopically high percentage of seeing and interacting with. And that's not, that's novel. That's new. Uh, you know, you've, you've always been able to like, maybe you wrote a book or something and, and it gets passed down. Um, but this is something that I, I think this is, you know, I'm Mormon. So this is like, this is one place where that comes through like very intensely is that I am aware of the past and I'm aware of the ancestors and I'm aware of the descendants. And I see what any one human is doing is a link in a chain. Right. And it doesn't mean that you are like critical in a way that no one else in the chain is critical, but it mean, but every link in a chain bears the same weight. Mm. Right. And that's what ties it forward into the future. Right. Is, is, the, is the existence of the chain. So you're a link in that chain. And it means that the things you do and the things you build will sustain the chain as it hangs down below you. And this is why you have to think about what you're making and what you're building. And many people don't. Yeah. And for some people and, and some family lines and some approaches to the world, that, that's probably, that's fine. I mean, it's what most humans have done. But we have an opportunity to think about it much more intentionally and with much higher agency than many people have ever thought about this in the past. That's beautiful. After we're done recording, you're, I believe, going to go do some book shopping. Or you're going to go check out uh, New York City's great bookstores. Yep. I want to learn a little bit more about how you think about books, how you select books. Why are books so, well, that, that would be a dumb question. Of course, books are important. But why is it so important specifically to seek out old books? Perhaps I know you have a taste for regional books. Just tell me, you know, what is Neil Davis's framework for uh, selecting books and seeking out the best books? How do you allocate your time and attention when it comes to books? So reading is, it's like, I mean, it, it is consumption in the sense of eating, right? Like it's, it's taking a new thing into you and giving it the opportunity to become part of you, which, which implies that you need to be reasonably thoughtful about what those things are. But it also implies that you should be cultivating certain kinds of taste as you, as you approach what's going on. So... You know, it's very common uh, for me to discover a new author or poet or something and get really into them for a period of time. You know, go through uh, six months or so and go through most of their oeuvre. Um, but there are others who, with whom I have a, a deeper relationship that will probably span my whole life that I've been taking it very slowly, right? <clears throat> I, don't, I don't feel the need to read them quickly because I know that by the time I die, we'll have read everything. So there's no rush, right? Like, it's like, it's like living with a person. Like, you're, you're, you're going to be the, like, there's a morality that a book has, right? So let's, let's go back to the kami and the spirits, right? A book has a kami by virtue of what it is and how it's made. And this, this also entails, like, how it's made, right? The physical construction of a book is also part of, of what that book has. What you would really, what you really want to do is you want to find a book, you want to find an author, and you want to learn that you can trust them. You don't know this up front, right? You don't know if you can trust any particular author or not. Um, some authors are worth reading, but they're not trustworthy. Maybe they're going to do things with your expectations that are not 
um, aesthetically just or, or are, end up being morally repugnant to you. So you also shouldn't be afraid to put a book down if it's a book that is not improving you, right? That, that even if you don't agree with it, if you're not engaging with it in a, per, in a, in a certain way. Uh, you know, so for instance, I think that many people respond very strongly, positively or negatively to an author like Cormac McCarthy. Because he's saying some very difficult, hard things about a certain view of the universe. And it, you have to decide how you're reacting to that. Right? Do you do you believe him? Do you disbelieve him? Do you think that even if he's not correct, that what he's saying bears worth and needs to be engaged with? Right? These are these are really hard questions. Do you disagree with him, but you agree with his questions that he's grappling with? And you can do this to any author, right? Like like you can you can you can delve through. Uh, so I, I finally I've been putting it off for years because of reputation. I, I finally went through War and Peace last fall, and. I was absolutely rewarded. It turns out that I can trust Tolstoy. And it turns out that I will go read that book again. Uh, Sigurd Unset's Kristen Lovren's Daughter. Same kind of thing, you know, just another huge, huge book. And it turns out that having read it, that I can trust her absolutely, which, which lets you immerse yourself in what's happening a little bit more deeply than you would otherwise. There are many other authors that, you know, you have to, you have to, it's like walking down a street and you got to know who else is walking down the street, right? Like you have to be aware of what's going on around you. But when you find the right, the right authors, then you can also take their recommendations, right? It tells you where else to look because when you find an author you love, your next question should be, well, who, who did they read? Right. Okay. And why are old books especially important? Old books are, are important for a couple of reasons. Probably the principal one being is that they preserve modes of being in the world that are not currently in vogue, right? So you can get these snapshots of things. So, so one of the books that I'm reading at home right now is a history of the Hoover administration and the early FDR administration that was published in 1939. This is a perspective that doesn't exist in the world. Right. No one has a view of FDR that is not completely entangled with what happened in World War II. Right. Right. Like, like you, you just can't even talk to someone. Like, there's no historian who would specialize in the first half of FDR. You literally can't find it anywhere. Right. Like, this literally does books. not exist. Yeah. Right. So, one of your goals in digging around through old books is you're trying to find viewpoints which just didn't make it for whatever reason. It doesn't mean that they didn't have value or weren't valid or correct ways of seeing the world. They simply don't exist. And so the real sweet spot is to find someone who said something that was true and correct, but is out of print, mm. right? This, yep. These are where you're going to find the most value. Right. Because there's, there's the canon. So, you know, if you want to go read um, St. Augustine or, or Boethius or someone else, right, you, you can always find these people in print and they're, they're worth reading. But you're probably not going to find something as new and surprising as you would if you found something that, that you didn't expect. An excellent example of this, uh, Thomas Traherne, Centuries of Meditations. He was a, he was a sixth, uh, 17th century Anglican, um, I think he was a, a priest or a reverend, and he wrote this long book of, of meditations on God and our relationship to God and our relationship to the world. It's sort of a Pilgrim's Progress style ruminations on the world. This disappeared. It was never published. No one knew that he wrote it. And then someone discovered the manuscript form 
in like 1902 and then published it. And then I, I, it may be, you know, now you can find anything in print once again, but for a long time, it was, it was just the single publishing in the early 1900s. And if you wanted to find out what this random 17th century divine thought, and it is absolutely excellent book. I mean, it's one of the few books that I probably, I probably took over 150 notes out of the book. Um, because he's expressing these viewpoints, uh, about the world that you certainly can't find in the Anglican church, Like you can't find them anywhere. They don't exist. Wow. Right. Like you can't believe the way that he believed and think about the world, the way he thought about the world in the world today. You simply can't. And so if you want to find that, if you want to be challenged in the way that he's going to challenge you, if you want to find out what his perspective could tell him that your perspective cannot tell you, right. You have to find that book. Excellent recommendation. I think my audience loves, uh, rabbit holes to go down. So that's very welcome. How about David Jones? Who is David Jones and what did you learn from him? Okay, so David Jones, I, I, I was um, kind of on a David Jones kick um, for the first part of this year. David Jones was a capital M modernist poet in the, probably was active from the 1930s to the 1970s as a poet. He was also a painter and an engraver. And what's interesting is all three forms of his work take very different forms. So his, his engraving, he was a student of Eric Gill. And so his engraving looks very Eric Gill, um, blocky, solid, angular, like we're chiseling in stone is kind of the feel of it. Um, and actually, there's a fourth art form, too, that I, I should mention in a minute. Um, so he did these. He did watercolor paintings that are very ethereal and busy in a way that's almost like Millefiori, right? Like they're, they're very visually dense and they don't distinguish like a central figure strongly. Like they sort of break the rules of, of painting where you're supposed to like foreground something. And that's the thing. Like what's interesting is he does it in a way that everything is backgrounded. Even the main, the main side of the action is backgrounded and so you really, your eye has to spend many minutes parsing the painting before it can figure out what's going on in this huh. painting. It's very, very, very uh, demanding. And then he wrote, he wrote some poems, and the, the poems are the main thing that I've been engaging with lately. Uh, the two long poems he wrote were in parenthesis, which is about World War I. He was enlisted. He served, of the British authors from the World War I period, he served longer in the trenches than anyone else. And he's also notable for being a, the only one of the modernist poets who came from a working class background. And he's not very well known. I don't think I've ever even heard the name until you were telling me about him. So Well, you, you can't anthologize him. Right. Because he only wrote long poems. Okay. Right. So then, yeah, so in parenthesis is World War I and the, and the climax is going up and over, of course, right? Like you're going into no man's land. So that's what the whole poem is building up to, going into no man's land. And it is absolutely phenomenal. Like the last 20 pages are just heartbreaking. Uh, the way that World War I things are. And then uh, the Anathemata is a long poem that is structured around the Catholic Mass. It's kind of like Humec the Armid's uh, A Drunk Man Looks at the Thistle, in that it's basically trying to capture, there's one concrete moment in time, one experience that one person has, and what if you were trying to elaborate every thought that that person had as they were going through that experience? And so both of them are, are long works, um, difficult to read. He, he actually uses a broader vocabulary than I think, I think they said, uh, if you count the number of words that he uses, he uses more words than like Yeats and Eliot put together. Like, like his vocabulary is just immense. 
And he tends to switch uh, registers, so he will write parts of the poem in Latin or Welsh and then switch back into English. And he does extensive footnoting. So he's like doing the David Foster Wallace thing, you know, 60 years before David Foster Wallace. Wow. So, and he considers the footnotes to be part of the poem. So you actually do have to go figure out what's going on with it. So, so very good, challenging poet. But, it, but again, presenting a viewpoint on war, on Anglo-Catholicism, um, on painting that essentially doesn't exist, right? You can't find it anymore. And then the, the fourth art form was later in his life when uh, painting was, was too mentally stressful for him. He invented a new form he called engraving where he would write uh, Latin inscriptions, Latin and Welsh inscriptions, um, and he would draw them as if they were chiseled in stone and do extremely detailed pieces. And then he would send these to people as like in lieu of letters, for instance. But they're, they're also very, very attractive pieces. Wow. Wow. So, okay. Well, that's... But like, but like David Jones is special, but he's not unique. Right. Like, and there that are, there's lots of other There are dozens or hundreds. Yeah, yes. Right. Absolutely. Like go find these people. I love it. That's ins- fourth wall. Go find these people. <laughs> I love it. That's inspiring. Yeah. My audience loves uh, esoteric, you know, uh, rabbit holes to go down. So those are some great leads. Neil, I don't want to take up too much of your time. You only have so much time and you have uh, some book shopping to do. So this was amazing. This is a uh, absolutely riveting, fascinating and inspiring discussion about so much. So I, I appreciate your time. And um, as for where people can find you, I'm going to put um, some information in the show notes. Obviously, people can DM you on Urbit. You teach Hoon School. So if you want to learn Hoon, uh, Neil might be the guy. You might be the guy that uh, they will learn who and from. I'm the gauntlet that must be run. <laughs> That's right. I'll, I'll put links uh, in the show notes to, to Hoon School. Um, anything else people should be aware of or that we should shout out? At Twitter, I'm Sigilante. Oh, that's right. I'll put a and link. And I don't really have like a other central home other than Urbit. Urbit is where I live. Yeah, totally. Now, so. Okay, awesome. Thanks again. This is, this is great. I appreciate right. it. Thank you. That's a wrap. Hey, thank you so much for listening to the podcast. You made it all the way to the very end, so you must really like the show. In that case, I would be super grateful if you'd be so kind to leave a review on Apple Podcasts. All you have to do is go to otherlife.co slash review. That's otherlife.co forward slash review. And it'll send you to Apple Podcasts. Just leave a review. You can be honest. Tell me what you really think. I'd really appreciate it because it'll help other people find the show, and I'm really trying to grow out the podcast. So thanks for listening, and thank you for leaving a review. I really appreciate it.